Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. Well, over the, uh, over the last few years, um, after I became a, a, a dad, I've read a bunch of parenting books uh, to kind of get ready and understand more about what I'm supposed to be trying to do. And I've, I've learned a whole lot from them. I've learned about developmental milestones and behavioral expectations. Right now, I'm working on uh, studying and researching to, to assure myself that I really can survive uh, potty training here very shortly. So prayers for my wife and I will be greatly appreciated as we enter that time. Uh, but one thing that the books that I've read did not prepare me for, one thing that I was, I was somewhat surprised to find, is that there's this weird increase of, of personal injury that comes with being a parent or a caretaker, especially of a little two-year-old as, as you enter this time. In just two years, I have usually been accidentally or incidentally uh, hit, kicked, and scratched. Uh, one time, I was given a, a bloody nose from an adorable little blonde headbutt. Uh, I've, I've burned my hand while grabbing a hot cup so that my daughter wouldn't. I've, I've burned my mouth while testing hot food. Uh, I've had books dropped on my face. I've stepped on toys that I was sure I put away five minutes ago that just poked right up into my foot. Bony elbows and knees have driven into all my vital organs. Just, there's just all this odd instance and, and occasion for personal injury. When, when my daughter became a toddler, I discovered that she was the perfect height for like every single corner table in our house, just all of them, everywhere she went, there was a corner waiting to hit her in the head. And so I developed this habit of anytime she would pass me, I would just reach out and put my hand over the, over the corner of the table as she passed by. And so for months, I've had this like little tiny bruises in my palms because every time that she would pass by, I'd just reach out and I'd cover that corner and Abigail would just bounce off my hand and she'd go along her merry way unscathed and I'd be following her behind her, shaking off the pain in my hand, waiting to throw it in front of the next corner as she she passed by. Through all of this, I've learned that at times, the cost of keeping her safe will be my own sacrifice and, and the sacrifice of my safety and comfort. But I love her, so I have no problem paying that price. Nothing is going to stop me from doing so. In our passage this morning, we will see that Jesus has a similar feeling and commitment towards us, but magnified to an infinitely greater scale. Because Jesus did far more than simply place his hand over the sharp corners that that, that occur in this life that, that we run headlong towards too often. He stepped directly in front of the sin of humanity in front of the power of evil and in front of the justified wrath of God. And unlike me, he was not surprised or unprepared for the sacrifice. Jesus did all of this knowing that the cost would be his own life. His body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus knew the cost He knew the cost of our salvation, and yet that cost, as high as it was, did not stop him from moving forward with his plan, the only plan that could possibly secure our salvation. Jesus knew the cost, but because of his love for us, he's still prepared to endure the cross. Now, last week, if you, were, if you were with us, you heard that Pastor Steve taught about Jesus' humble yet unstoppable kingly entry into the entrance of the city of Jerusalem. Right? Word spread like wildfire as he rode that donkey in through the streets and, and of Israel's ancient capital city, and cloaks were laid down on the road, and praises of blessed to the king who comes in the name of the Lord were raised and shouted by the people as he rode by. And as this happened, the leaders of the Jewish people became more and more unsettled. 
That feeling would only grow in the days to come as Jesus began to do things and say things that no one had ever done, had ever done before. He, he, uh, he ran the money changers and the merchants out of the temple area so that it could, be, it could turn back to what it was supposed to be, that house of prayer for God. He taught in the temple daily, astounding people, not only with his incredible interpretations of scripture, but also with the authority with which he taught. He questioned the theology of religious leaders, and he made it clear to all who would listen that something was about to happen that was going to change the world. You can read about all of this in Luke chapter 19 through 21. So it should probably not surprise us that by the time we get to Luke chapter 22, verse 2, we read that the chief priests and the scribe, these, these religious leaders of the day that Jesus continuously called out for their lack of faith and their lack of understanding, they were seeking a way to put Jesus to death. They saw Jesus as a danger, not only to their position of power, but honestly to the safety and the stability of, of their nation, of the, of the Israelite people. Ever since Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem, they'd been trying to find a way to end his life. And in chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, two important things happen that finally push all these schemes into reality. All right, the first is that Luke tells us that we're arriving at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the meal of Passover. And this is, important, this is an important detail because the population of Jerusalem was about to explode. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would arrive in Jerusalem every year for a week-long celebration remembering God's salvation of Israel uh, from, from the people out of their slavery, out of their bondage in Egypt long ago. So, so hundreds of thousands of people are about to show up in Israel. And imagine for a moment that you're one of these leaders, you're one of these chief priests or scribes, and you just witnessed this dramatic entry of Jesus into the city with people swarming into the streets and calling out to Jesus as king. And now you have this extremely popular and shockingly powerful itinerant preacher who would not only have the usual citizens of Jerusalem there to listen to him, but, but the nation of Israel showing up and, and several hundreds of thousands of people now ready to hear his teachings and, and, and be changed and pulled over to, to his view of life. If you believed before that Jesus needed to be dealt with, now you're going to feel desperate. Now you're going to feel like you have to act as soon as possible, just waiting for your moment. These Jewish leaders finally got the opportunity that they'd been seeking when one of Jesus' own followers unexpectedly breaks ranks and comes forward with an offer to betray Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad to, and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of the crowds. So Judas, one of the twelve disciples, one of the twelve people on this earth closest and most befriended by Jesus, shockingly makes this decision to betray his teacher. Now, we never get very much more than, than hints or suggestions as to what motivated Jesus, what was, or Judas, what was going on in his heart at this time, or why he decided to trade Jesus' life for a bag of coins. But we can safely say that, that at least two things are at play. All right? One is that Judas made this decision himself. All right? Something inside him was broken, it was dark, it was insidious, and it opened the door to just dark and terrible things. The second thing that we're told here is that Satan, the supernatural and demonic enemy of God, influenced the already sinful heart of Judas into making this decision, into betraying Jesus. 
I personally do not believe that this passage is telling us that Satan possessed Judas in such a way where he's forcing his will, he's forcing him to act in a way that otherwise he would not have. I do believe that demonic possession can happen, but it's also important to recognize that Satan all too often works not against our desires, but in cooperation with our own fallen, sinful desires and actions. And I think that's what's being described here. So if we take a step back and we kind of see the setting, the, the setup that Luke is giving us, the Jewish nations arriving in Jerusalem, preparing for this feast of unleavened bread and the Passover meal. The Jewish leaders are making plans to put Jesus to death, desperately hoping for their opportunity to strike soon. Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, is, betray, is preparing to betray his teacher and friend for a little bit of money. And Satan is preparing to pull all his strings and watch the Son of God suffer in a way that no one ever has or no one ever will again. The stage is set for things to go very, very badly for Jesus very, very soon. His life is now in greater danger than it ever has been before. The world is preparing to turn against the Son of God. And what does he do in response? Jesus prepares to have one last meal with the people he loves before everything falls apart exactly as he knows it's supposed to. Again, in Luke 22, starting at verse 7, we see that it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that we may prepare the Passover, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went ahead and found it just as he, they had, told, he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. For those of you who were here last week to, to hear Pastor Steve preach on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you may notice that there's some parallels between that passage and the one we have this morning. In both passages, Jesus sends a few disciples ahead to prepare things for his arrival. And in both passages, Jesus accurately describes all that they should be able to, to find, and it turns out exactly as Jesus said it would be. In both passages, we see that Jesus clearly has a plan and that he is clearly in control. There are, however, two important differences between the, the scenes of Jesus' first entry into Jerusalem and the second. The first time in his trip into Jerusalem, uh, you know, everyone knows he's coming. This time, he doesn't really let anyone know that it's happening. Before, he had that grand kingly entrance, but now he quietly prepares a Passover meal with his disciples to, to enjoy together, and we get no details about the when or the where he entered into the city. Second, we are told that Jesus is there to specifically eat this Passover meal with his disciples. And this is significant because the Passover meal begins at 6 p.m. and goes late into the night. Which means that for the first time since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and, and caused all this ruckus and, and made the Jewish leaders nervous, for the first time he'll be within the city limits at night. It was his custom to teach during the day but then leave the city and camp outside the city walls during the night. You can read about that in Luke 21. And so, and, and this night, coming into the city on this night, the crowds would all be in their own homes, enjoying Passover with, with their own families. And so the crowds that had served as Jesus' protection would not be around him at any point in this evening. 
And with Jesus is Judas, who knows all of Jesus' plans for the evening and now has close, quick access to the Jewish leaders that he needs to find to let them know where Jesus is going to be. Jesus makes this decision to come into the city to celebrate Passover with his disciples, and it's a fatal decision. He is walking straight into what looks like a trap. What is the Son of God up to? How much does he know? How much does he understand about what is going on? on. Well, in verse 14, it says, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. At Passover, the food and drink would be set out on tables and, and cushions would be arranged all along those tables for a long, relaxing meal. There was, and and still is, a a specific and ceremonial order to the way that this meal was served and enjoyed. And Jesus likely assumed the position of the master of the meal, the master of ceremonies, a position that usually the father of the house would take up. And he speaks of his deep longing and desire to share this meal with these people that he loves. And then he says, and then he speaks of the reality that he knows that this is in fact his last meal on this earth before he goes to suffer. He tells his disciples that one day when all of God's plans are fulfilled, he will once again sit down at a table and enjoy fellowship with those who follow him and love him. But this meal, this Passover, will be his last. Because Jesus knew. He knew the Passover was a precursor to the events that were about to unfold. He knew that the Jewish leaders were making plans to take action against his life. He knew that Jesus was about to betray him and that Satan was on the move. He knew that on this day, this day when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, he knew that the time for his life to come to an end and be sacrificed had arrived as well. He knew that suffering was just around the corner. He knew that the world was preparing to destroy him. And yet Jesus was preparing himself too. He was preparing for something so much greater than anyone other than God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit could ever have dreamed or anticipated. Jesus was preparing to create, through his flesh and blood and death, a brand new promise with power to save those who would follow him. In verse 17 it says, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. As I mentioned before, the Passover is a very sacred, intentional meal. It is a holy act of remembrance and thanksgiving for God's past, present, and future faithfulness to his people. However, during this Passover, Jesus radically redefines what, or or rather who, the food and drink are pointing to. 
He also reveals that he knows exactly what's going on, exactly what's about to happen, and he is prepared to fully embrace it. Of the bread, Jesus says, this is my body, which is given to you. His body given up and given over to death, sacrificed for our sake. Remember that I choose to do this, Jesus tells them. Remember that the one you follow is the one willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. Of the cup, Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Throughout the Old Testament, the shedding of an animal's blood is the way that sacrifice for atoning sins is accomplished. And yet here, on, during his last meal on earth, Jesus tells us that he is preparing to shed his own blood so that a new covenant, a new promise can be offered so that you and I might be able to be freed from sin and offered salvation. There's obviously so, so much that could be unpacked and understood within this passage, but I want to take a moment to just sit with this incredible fact that Jesus is completely aware of what's going on. Right? Nothing about his impending arrest, his abandonment, his betrayal, his death, nothing about any of that is going to surprise him. He has made it clear that he understands he's about to suffer and die. Jesus knew the cost. His courage and commitment to his obedience to God was one of perfect understanding. Christ knew the cost, knew the pain of what was to come and the horror of what was about to happen. And yet still, even knowing the cost, Christ still prepared himself to endure the cross. I don't know about you, but I don't know of anyone or any story quite like this. I know people sacrifice for, for the ones they love. And I know that there is bravery and courage and selflessness to be found in the hearts of many who walk on this earth, but not like this. As Jesus sat at this table and enjoyed this last peaceful moments before the terrors to come, in his mind and in his heart, he knew. He knew that the friends that were at that table were going to abandon him. He knew that the world would curse him and mock him and crucify him as he spent himself for their sake. He knew that his darkest moment was just around the corner when he, when he would be forsaken even by God the Father. He knew that his mother, his mother Mary, would, be, would have to stand there and witness him dying nailed to the cross. Jesus knew he was going to die, and it did not stop him. That is a love like nothing else that I have ever known. It's almost unbelievable. And yet, thanks be to God, I stand here before you this morning to tell you that I believe everything about this is absolutely true, and it is absolutely everything to me. I think there are two important things that we have to consider in light of Jesus' astounding willingness to suffer and die for our sakes. First, I would encourage you to reflect and sit with what it truly means that Jesus was completely aware of what this salvation would cost him. His arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion, they were not the, the backup plan or something he did when his first plan failed. This was the only way to save us, and Jesus believed it was worth it. This is the sort of realization that led the authors of Scripture to, to fill the pages that they wrote with words of praise and adoration. Everything Jesus did was in willing obedience to the plan of God in order to save you. 
If you're already a believer and a follower of Jesus, then this week I would, I would like to ask you to try something. I want you to try to describe not what you think about this. I know, I know what you probably think about this. We're really good at thinking. But I want you to describe how this makes you feel. What happens in your heart and in your soul when you realize that Christ knew the cost of your forgiveness and your salvation and didn't hesitate to pay it in full? I'd encourage you to pray about this and then share it with someone. Certainly share it with God, but also share it with a friend or a member of your life group, a mentor, or, or perhaps you could share it with somebody who does not yet believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your testimony could be the spark the Holy Spirit uses to light the fire of faith in their life. If you're a follower of Christ this week, try to, try to think about and understand and pray about how the sacrifice of Christ's life makes you feel. What, what, what does that generate in your heart toward our Lord? And if you're joining us this morning and you're not yet a follower in Jesus, I have a challenge for you as well. I'd ask you to consider this. If you could be sure that what I've said this morning is true, that Jesus really did put himself in danger and into death because he loves you, if you could be absolutely sure of that, what would it mean to you? What in your life might change? What, what might that cause in your life to be different? I'd love for you to reach out to somebody who does believe in Jesus and talk to them about that. Put yourself in that state and, and consider that question and see what happens out of that conversation. The second thing I think we must do in light of, of this passage is, is remember that Jesus called us to remember the sacrifice. Remember that in order for us to be saved from sin and death, his body had to be given up and his blood shed. To help us remember this last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, it's been practiced for, by Christians for more than 2,000 years, and it's what we call the Lord's Supper or call communion. And at faith, we normally celebrate this remembrance on the first Sunday of every month, just as we did last week. But this morning, we're going to do so again, remembering what we have read and seeking Jesus together as a community. So just like the disciples, we too will take up the bread and the cup. Just like the disciples, we will remember Christ's body broken and given up to die for us. And we will remember that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. As we enter this time of communion, I invite you to reflect and pay attention to what is going on in your heart and in your soul. As you remember Jesus' love for you, or perhaps think about it for the very first time, what do you feel? What does Jesus' sacrifice of his life mean to you? Personally, I feel humbled. I feel unworthy and yet so profoundly grateful that my worthiness doesn't have anything to do with Jesus' willingness to die for me. I don't have to put my hand over the sharp corners of this life in order to save myself, which is good because I can't save myself and I would die. Christ did it for me, and that means I am saved to be with God forever. At our church, as, as, as Kelly said before, anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is welcome to join us for the celebration of communion. In a moment, we will all together take the bread, and after some words read from Scripture, we will eat together. And then we will take the cup, and after another reading from Scripture, we will drink. If you've joined us in person today, the cups are outside in the individual servings, just in, uh, outside the doors. 
You can simply tear away those, those pieces, one for the bread and one for the juice, as, as we uh, take these things together. If you've joined us online, we, we invite you to please use whatever food and drink you have available in order to join us for the celebration. If you're here with us this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you've not yet confessed him as your Lord and Savior, we want you to know that we are so grateful for you to be here today. We're honored that you trust us to be a place where you come and continue to ask questions and explore who Jesus is and and what Christianity is all about. During this time, we'd simply ask that you reflect on what you have heard, maybe even use this time to try offering a simple prayer to God. Or if you'd like, you can use this moment right now, perhaps for the first time, to reach out to Jesus and tell him that you believe. Tell him that you know him to be the Son of God and the Savior of your life. And if you feel led to do that, please do so and then join us for the celebration. And either way, let, me know, let us know. Come find me this week or find one of our other pastors. Let's have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that. I invite you to consider these words from the Apostle Paul from his letter in Romans as we prepare ourselves for the remembrance of Christ's life, death, and sacrifice for us. This is from Romans chapter 5, where Paul wrote, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an, or would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice and our wonderful new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So, friends of God, let us join in remembering our Savior together this morning. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you, broken for you. I offer it, I offer my life for you. So eat this bread in remembrance of Christ. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Would you please pray with me? We remember, Lord. This morning we remember that your life, innocent and perfect and good, was sacrificed on our behalf. We were not able to save ourselves. We were not able to to climb out of the sin that had entrapped us. But you, Lord, came and you taught and you loved and you gave your life so that we might be able to be with God forever. 
Lord, this week as we move forward into our busy lives and our busy days, this, this holy week, as we move toward remembering on Friday your, your death and remembering on Sunday your resurrection, please, Lord, speak to us. Help us remember the deep value of not only that you loved and that you sacrificed for us, but that you knew what it would cost, and you move forward anyway in love. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. If you're able, let's stand together.
here today would like to lead us in this prayer as an act of worship, a reminder that our gifts, our offerings, our acts of worship today. So let's pray this prayer out loud together today. Holy and generous God, we have gathered today to worship you and to be equipped for every good work you have called us to this week. As we go, prepare us to witness to your goodness with every gift you have given us to share that all people may know your peace through Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen. It's great to be with you all here this morning. Just one more reminder, we've got these invites out in the foyer. I think some of our welcome team members may have a handful of them. Um, They're on both ends of the building. We'd love for everyone to grab at least one. we live in a city that is not uh, fully saved. We have, we have people, we have neighbors, we have coworkers, we have loved ones uh, that, that need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we'd love to have lots and lots of people here joining us on Sunday. Uh, it's got the invite, it's got the kids' information on the back, everything you need. You can just walk up to somebody and say, hey, love to see you on Sunday. But now please receive this prayer as you leave. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness and protect you in the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace today. Amen.